I hope you've enjoyed um, these videos. Uh, one of the things that I, I believe is that when we talk about the gospel and we talk about scripture and God's saving work, there are times in which we, we emphasize so much of what happens within the text and these stories that happened all these years ago. And as a fundamental conviction and belief, I believe that each of us who've experienced the grace of God are walking gospels. We are stories of good news. We are, we are stories of how it is that God enters into our lives in the midst of brokenness and incompleteness and somehow creates something new. And so we need to tell these stories. We need, to, we need to know one another's stories because it is the revelation of God in the world today. This isn't just stuff that we talk about that happened hundreds or thousands of years ago. And I hope that you've appreciated the stories that Patty and Don and Andy and Michelle have shared in these weeks. Um, this week, I'm going to sort of make it a commitment to posting those on social media. So if you missed any of them or you wanted to hear them again, uh, they'll be there uh, for you. Um, but our good news this morning uh, comes out of Hebrews chapter 10. And if you have a Bible, you're welcome to open there with me this morning. I feel like I'm getting a lot of feedback, a lot of feedback. Um, but you're welcome to open there this morning. And this scripture will be on the screen, and I will read it here for you. I've titled my sermon uh, this morning, um, Becoming Human, which is both uh, something that God does in Christmas and something we ought to do in our lives today. But our text comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord, church. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, See God, I have come to do your will, O God. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, See, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. God, we have come this morning longing to bear witness to the strange news that you come in the body of this baby 2,000 years ago to change and heal and save the world and to save us as a part of that good creation. And so, God, would you speak this morning? Would you speak a word of hope and of healing? Would you speak a word that sustains us in the midst of our brokenness and the world's brokenness? Speak, O oh God, for your people are listening. I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me ask you a question, a film question for those who are gurus. What do the films Forrest Gump, American Beauty, Pulp Fiction, and Citizen Kane all have in common? I'm going to guess that nobody's going to answer the question right now. They all start the same exact way with this thing that we call reverse chronology. 
They start with the end at the very beginning of their movies. Yes, I've seen Pulp Fiction. Don't judge me. But we find ourselves in that mode of storytelling this morning on the fourth Sunday of Advent. We find ourselves in Advent, which is the beginning of the Christmas or beginning of the Christian calendar and the beginning of the Christ story in the Gospels. And yet, the assigned epistle reading for this morning's lectionary text is in Hebrews 10, and it recounts the ways that Jesus was offered as a sacrifice. It offers some sense, a direction, conclusion about where this story is ultimately going, that is Jesus' death on the cross, and what that is all about. This morning, in the fourth Sunday of Advent, we see the wooden cross before we see the wooden manger. And it would have been helpful if this lectionary text had backed up, actually, just a single verse from where we began in verse 5. Verse 4 reads in this really strange way. It says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now that's some good news, I guess. (laughs) It is impossible for us to rid ourselves of sin. If we could do that, we would not need Jesus. If we could fix ourselves, we would not need a savior. The hope that the church holds out for the world on this final Sunday of Advent is that God has done something that we cannot do for ourselves. How many ineffective ways, though, we have tried to take away our own sin. It's probably helpful at this point to define sin within the context even of the church It's a word loaded with all sorts of meaning, some good, some bad, some accurate, some inaccurate. But my preferred definition of sin uh, comes from a theologian that defines it this way. He says, sin is a culpable disturbance of God's shalom. If you want to sound really intelligent and smart after the service, you can just quote that definition of sin. People will think that you got something really divine in this morning's sermon. A culpable disturbance of God's shalom. Shalom means peace or wholeness, a completeness of life. Shalom is everything in its right place, as Radiohead once sung. It's, it's what our house looks like before we host company for Christmas, right? Like everything is in its right place, but not just in the scale of our homes. It's like on a, on a cosmic scale, everything in its right place. This is shalom. And when everything is in its right place, we actually sang about what happens when that happens in the world today, we sang like everything praises God. Angels and planets and suns and stars and people were all caught up in the celebration and praise and declaring glory to God. Shalom is when my kids share with each other. It's a rare occasion. Shalom is the governing of a society in a just manner, economically and socially. Shalom is the world as it is supposed to be, as God designed it to be as God wills it to be. And sin is the culpable disturbance of that thing. Sin is what is wrong with the world. It's the disruption of God's intended goodness in the world. Sin is likely that thing that you regret as your worst moment in your life. Sin is that habit that takes from your life and takes from your life and takes from your life rather than contributes to it that diminishes who you are. Sin is that hurt that you've experienced, and it's that hurt that you've caused 
other people to experience. It's the continuation of unjust legal and economic systems in the world. This all disturbs God's intended goodness for creation. Sin is that thing that you sense when you realize and feel that the world is out of joint with itself, that something isn't quite right here. And the church has so often been guilty of looking at the world as like, you're the problem. You're the sinful thing that we need to get rid of. We need to condemn you in order to condemn sin. But we ought to take as a church and as religious people a posture of humility. Like the well-known writer and theologian G.K. Chesterton in England, who upon being asked what was wrong with the world, simply responded, I am. Sin isn't just the world's problem, it's our problem. And oh, how many ineffective ways we have all tried to take away our sins. In the first century, they did it with goats and bulls. Unlike the people of our our secular 21st century, the ancient children of Israel were schooled in the laws of God. They had been taught to keep God's law both morally and socially with meticulous care living lives of purity and ethical integrity and religious reverence. Nobody, though, kept those standards perfectly. They all fell short of the glory of God and participated in the culpable disturbance of God's creation, hurting one another, hurting themselves, hurting creation. And given the absolute otherness of God, all were deemed unworthy to stand in the presence of the Holy One. And so what hope did a sinner possess? How could one approach God? And so along with these teachings of the law, uh, about an, there came an elaborate sort of system and structure that we know is a sacrificial system that's introduced in Exodus. And if you ever read Leviticus, it's like a butcher shop talking about the sacrificial system of Israel. It's such a system called for the presentation of animals, goats and bulls, birds and sheep, to be given as sacrificial offerings in the temple before God. And in presenting these sacrifices, a person... Was, not, was relieved of their guilt and, the, and, and of their sin and the ways that they've been culpable in disturbing God's good creation. This is the world in which Mary and Joseph uh, have Jesus in. The author of Hebrews introduces Jesus, though, as the one who stands in critique of this whole religious system. Sure, Maybe these sacrifices, maybe these goats and bulls may alleviate some of our guilt, and maybe it's just for ourselves so that we don't feel so bad. We can say we've been forgiven. But they don't fix the underlying sin problem in the world. The fact that those sacrifices would need to be made year after year, month after month, is an obvious admission that these are inadequate to address the sin problem that we all experience in the world If it works so well, after all, why do we have to keep going to Passover every single year? We may not be offering goats and bulls, but how many ineffective ways have we in the modern world tried to take away our sins? Some people think that we can save ourselves through education. If we can just get everybody educated, if everybody can know what I know, then we could really save the human race and there would be utopia that we would step into. What we call sin in this case is just ignorance. And if people had access to information, then everything would be all good. Knowledge will lead us home. And it sounds right (laughs) until you consider all of the highly educated people who do incredibly immoral things. Can education save us. Some people think science can save us. This is the 
the, the idea of the Enlightenment and the project of the Enlightenment that humanity and the Western world has been on for the past three plus centuries. If we could just discover the cure, all will be well. Right? If we could give ourselves over to the scientific project, we'll be able to rid the world of violence and evil. But for all the good that science does, and, and it does a tremendous amount of good, this isn't like a hate idea or whatever on on science and, and modern medicine I appreciate and love all of those things and I embrace it in my life for sure but just consider that it hasn't been the solution consider the violence of the 20th century science has not saved us it cannot reshape and it cannot reform the human heart it cannot address greed and pride and lust and envy and slothfulness or any of the deadly sins that can corrupt the human condition. Others in our world, perhaps those sometimes in the church, think that politics are going to save us, right? Imagine if just the right people were in positions of power and, and held the, 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 the positions of legislative and judicial authority in the world. Imagine if those other bad people, they didn't hold the positions of power and authority. Then everything would be okay. Then the world would be right. Then we would have justice. Then all of the problems that the world experienced would be okay. We generally call this scapegoating, by the way, when we say, oh, those are the people that are preventing us from experiencing utopia. They're not. Still others in our world, before you think I'm on my high horse here, think religion will save us. If we maintain the proper doctrine and dogma, then, you know, people will be saved. If we can get people to pray specific kinds of prayers with specific kinds of words next to each other regularly enough, then everything will be well. If we can generate the right kinds of spiritual experiences and, and move people emotionally with our music, then people will be, then if we could organize our religious lives and get everybody to do all the things that they're supposed to do, then, uh, you know, we would see revival in this country and in the world. But here's the thing, church. The blood of bulls and goats doesn't work. It didn't work in the first century, and they aren't going to work in their modern expressions in the 21st century. I heard this story recently about a church that had gone on an international missions trip. Bryant, you're going to appreciate this story. <laughs> and there was this team of people who, when they arrived, they noticed that the place that they were staying and the organization that they were partnering with had this big wall that was painted a variety of different colors that were there. And so they asked one of the hosts, they said, you know, hey, like, what is this wall all about? Or what's the meaning of this wall? And the host replied, like, oh, that? Well, when Americans come over on their missions trips, they need to have something to do. And so if we don't have anything for them to do, we just get them to paint the wall and they feel like they're participating in this like missions activity in the world. Church, <laughs> Jesus did not come to paint on a meaningless wall. It's not just the pretty colors that he had come. Jesus came to reconcile people to God and people to one another. He came to mend what was broken, to rebuild what was destroyed, to make whole what was shattered, to recover what was lost, to make shalom between God and us, to create and form a community of people who had shalom among themselves that cannot be found anywhere else in the world. This is what we call the church. Jesus came, in other words, to save us, 
to redeem us, to forgive us and free us from the powers of sin that have ensnared our lives. And it is the incarnate God, God in the flesh, who offers his life as a sacrifice to heal a world blemished and marked by sin. What we see in the Christmas story is a God who overcomes his own disgust for sin within humanity with God's own life entering into our humanity. He enters into the very experience of the human condition in sin so as to redeem every element of our lives and in the world. See, we need to be forgiven. We need to be restored. We need for somebody to come and save us because we are lost. We need to be made right with God. And the blood of bulls and goats doesn't work, but the blood of Jesus does. It is God and God alone in the person of Jesus Christ who saves, who is the answer to the problem that we all experience in the world. And it's important for us to start at the end of this story in this final Sunday of Advent to remind ourselves of why Christmas matters at all. Because 2,000 years ago, in a Middle Eastern village called Bethlehem, God moves into the world in this very strange way, takes on flesh, not as some like party trick just to be like, hey, I'm God and I'm here, but as an act of loving kindness to redeem the fullness of our humanity. Undeserved, unmerited, it is Jesus who saves. As a song that Jim sung last week for us, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope and the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. That's good news. And this is what I love about Michelle's story. It is in the midst of tragedy and brokenness, in the midst of hurt and difficulty, that God knocks on the door in the form of a couple of people from our church. And in the midst of that moment, the grace and love of God come rushing into the darkness of this person's life. I don't know if you caught it. At the, she said it there in the story. She's like, like, that night at my door changed my life. Because God showed up in flesh and blood through our church to her in the midst of her hurt. See, somebody may be sitting here in desperate need of salvation. Someone may be sitting here, even a regular church attender, utterly lost, longing for a word of hope and salvation this morning. You've been in church for 30 years. This is why the New Testament talks about God is saving you. Not God saved you in the past tense. God is saving you. He continues to save us. Somebody may be in need of a word of hope this morning. And here's the word. Is that your deepest, darkest sins and your shameful secrets are simply irrelevant when it comes to the counterintuitive, ecstatic announcement of the gospel. And so are your goodness, your rightness, your church attendance, and all the wise, moral, mature decisions that you have made and actions that you have taken in your life. It is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone who is the answer to the problem that you're facing in your life. He is the one who saves. Jesus comes that your weary soul might feel its worth and rejoice. That you might experience a new and glorious morn might you receive him this day 
anew. But what's more than that, for many of us who have been saved and are continuing to be saved by God, we are not merely recipients of this good news. We are the instruments of it. We who have received the saving work of Jesus in our lives, who have been not merely forgiven of our sins, but freed from them, we are the body of Christ in the world today. We are the incarnate ones in the world today. We are to like Jesus, like our church did 20 years ago at Michelle's front door, move into the neighborhood of darkness, move into people's lives in the midst of their brokenness, move into a world that is fractured and destroyed, move towards issues of injustice, bringing good news, upending sin's power and grip in the world, and bringing God shalom. This is what we do. This is the mission of the church. We don't just come here so that we could remind ourselves of how we've been saved. We are the incarnate body of Christ today that moves into the brokenness of the world. As God was incarnate in the world, so are we the embodied presence of Jesus in a world that is still weary. It's still weary. Might we make the souls of our neighbors feel their worth, that they might rejoice in the midst of their weariness, May God continue his saving work in and through our church this year. May it be so in us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.